Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Radai. I'm your host, Eddie Palmion, and with me here in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. How are you? I'm great and feel honored to have a true legend in Swedish business literature in our studio today. Great, same here. I woke up really early and I was really excited for, for recording this episode. Uh, today we will speak to Ronald Fagefjell, a Swedish journalist, editor-in-chief, author, political writer and business historian born in 1945. Over the years, Ronald has been extremely productive, compiling more than 30 books and numerous other publications. So uh, what will we talk about today? In this episode, we will primarily speak about Ronald's book, They Made Sweden Rich, which is only available in Swedish with the title Dom gjorde Sverige rikt, and covers more than the last 100 years of business history in Sweden. It's a fascinating read, and what I like about books covering as long Time span such as this is how much is changing over long periods of time while it feels that there is practically no change in real time. They Made Sweden Rich was first published in 2005 and we are honored to discuss it with its author. Here comes our conversation with Ronald Fagefjell. Hello Ronald and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Nice to be here. It's great to have you on and, and uh, with you here in the studio in Stockholm. And thank you for taking the time. So, so where do you normally live and, and work? I live in uh, no- north of Stockholm in Djursholm, near the nature. <laughs> Perfect. And that's where you came in from this morning. Yeah, I have my office on my premises. Nice. And um, to begin, can you tell our listeners about your background and what led you into writing about the world of business and investing? Yeah, my my background is a bit peculiar. I I grew up in a very small world, I, I, in a very poor place, in the uh, very barren sort of in in the west of Sweden. We spoke a Dano Norwegian dialect, and with many words for connecting with, with concerning people, boats, uh, nature, pl- topography, <laughs> uh, animals plants and stuff like that, but very little about feelings. And uh, I, I lived with my grandparents in the beginning because my parents were very young. And I was probably the, an accidental <laughs> thing that happened. <laughs> and uh, my there were many relatives. I mean, 12 siblings on my mother's side and, and eight on my father's side. So there were more than 100 near relatives that I had to keep track of. And uh, I, I think br- the brain is very sort of plastic when you're, when you're small. So by five, I think I had a good command of, of uh, I could recognize people's faces and I knew their names and I knew all the characteristics that the old people talked about. So I never felt that people were were really problematic in my life after that. The problematic thing was rather, what was the world? I was living in a small world with a, with a loo over the, uh, on the other side of a farm, and and uh, the water was taken in a bucket, and we had a, a wooden stove and and a, and a well on on the garden where we had to use buckets, so. A lot of a lot of animals. So that was a very different word. It could could have been medieval, but by five, I had learned that word, and I got world, and I got very much praise for learning it. And I felt like a small prince or a king in that surrounding. And then my father and mother moved to a new house, because Sweden was moving very fast in those days. And this was by 1950. And we had our own house with central heating and, and hot and, and lukewarm uh, tap water and and everything changed. And I thought it was a bit boring because I wasn't in the center anymore and I was the oldest amongst a growing number of siblings. So I escaped to my grandmother many times. I mean, and they liked me to be there. So, so. So I, I stayed in uh, with one foot in the old world and one in the new. And I had one grandmother on the, my father's side who was uh, who was uh, a Pentecostal, a very fanatic sort of woman. 
that ruled her world. And my grandfather was a very strong, autocratic, uh, old-fashioned, conservative Christian Lutheran. And I had to go to two Sunday schools to solve that problem. <laughs> so I started off with a very polarized, polarized world. Everything couldn't be true. <laughs> <laughs> and my father was a socialist, and our daily paper was uh, socialist, and it had more views than news. And we had one channel, radio channel, in the kitchen. It was always going on, because my, my parents were intellectual. My father was absent normally, but my mother liked to have the radio on. We discussed a lot of things, and she told a lot of things. And we, so the interesting, the world seemed very interesting. So I listened a lot, lot to the radio. And since I was the oldest, I had to learn how to read by myself. So it took some time. But by eight or eight and a half, maybe, I read my first book. And that was a revelation. I mean, suddenly I had people around me. <laughs> I mean, novels. I, I understood them because I had I was trained understanding people. And I, after two or three books, I didn't read them anymore. I just devoured the books <laughs> one by one. What type of books? All kinds. I could, anything. I mean, there could be anything I could find. My, my mother and father, they were, as I said, they were intellectuals. They had a bookshelf and everybody had a bookshelf. But the other people, they had souvenirs in the bookshelf. <laughs> but we had books. So, I, of course, I... I started like a termite and <laughs> read my through the whole uh, bookshelf. And then I started to visit the school library and uh, they didn't have that many. So I had to go on to the boat, the library boat. And I went there with two shopping bags every week. <laughs> and people, they talked about me. They said that there is this small boy and he's reading all the time and he's probably going to blow his brain within <laughs> two or three years. And we, we, we feel such pity for the parents. <laughs> My parents, they, they didn't really mind. They, they thought it was a good exercise. And, and uh, I went to school and, and I, didn't, I didn't think it was very interesting, really, because uh, I was... Uh, I, Many of the interesting things I was exploring in the in the winter time when everything was cold and and and, uh, and damp and 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 dark, there was nothing else to do than to read really, and and since I was doing that, I didn't fancy sport very much in the beginning. But in a way, I changed because I read the books. I mean, I could, I and I listened to the radio. So slowly, I. I switched to the real, to, to real Swedish. And I could speak a more rich language than most people around me. So I became popular in the association world with different, uh, I mean, four age and all kinds of, uh, they wanted somebody who could handle people and talk in front of audiences <laughs> and speak a little bit more rich <laughs> language. So I was sucked into that world and, and uh, became an organizer in a, in a way. And I grew seven, 17 centimeters when I, when I got into puberty. So by 15, I was a tall guy, very skinny, but tall. And uh, suddenly I, I noticed that I was a, high, a reasonably good high jumper. And I was also, I, rec I found that the sport volleyball was my sport because I could jump. And I, I, so, so I founded a team and read the rules and the training, <laughs> yeah, many things like that. So I learned from the sport and switched to the sport and, and felt that... Uh, if I'm going to do something in this world, uh, I have to have competition in my life. I have to break out of this countryside thing. I, I have to play with a better volleyball team, but above all, I have to go to the best school. <laughs> so I, I, I sort of maneuvered my way to Wittfelska Lerweket in Gothenburg. It wasn't allowed. You shouldn't, you couldn't go to any college in those days, but I had a, uh, my mother's sister lived in, in Gothenburg, and there was a rule called Muster rule. 
<laughs> if you had a near relative, you you could you could have her as guarantee guaranteeing that you were taken care of. So I moved to to Gothenburg and and, and came there as a sort of uh, yeah Forrest Gump really. <laughs> And the teachers, they were, uh, it was an old Latin type of preacher, uh, priest kind of, of college, but they have changed to, to natural science as well. And we had young si teachers in science, and we had reasonably young women teaching three languages, and we had old fugis teaching philosophy, history, everything. And it was a fantastic world. I mean, I, I always sat in the front. <laughs> How did this shape you, this, this period of your life? I sort of connected to the earlier, to the books. I mean, the interesting, I love the, the teacher in literature, literature history. I mean, she sorted things out. I love the biology teacher. He, he, he was my hero. He, he sort of asked me, I know, I can see that you know a lot of names and, and species and things, but you have to, you have to explain. And the religion guy said the same thing. He talked about, he probably was a priest that lost faith because he, so he, 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 he was a heathen, <laughs> said one of the, of the pupils. He thought it was, and I was a heathen too. So that guy thought it was, it was very, it was, it was not fair that I got the highest mark. <laughs> it was called Christianity in those days. I mean, it, it wasn't all about the evolution of, of religions. It was about teaching the right Luther. <laughs> But that priest, he really liked to discuss this. So I came out of the Ritvelska, yeah, as a fairly, I mean, I, I didn't spend much time reading reading their books, but I, I listened well, <laughs> well. So my marks were okay. And I, and, and I met, uh, I was on a, I met, met an advisor, a young girl who, taught, we talked about what I was going to be, and she said, biology is, you can only be a teacher, it's not a very good path for you. How about economy? It's very evolutionary, <laughs> she said. How did she know? And I think maybe economic journalism could be something for you, because Vacanza uh, Ferrer has started, right? It was 1960. Four or sixty-five. Uh, there, there are there are opportunities there. And Vacanza Ferrer is a Swedish magazine. Yeah, that is very yeah. Famous. And uh, she she had noticed that the number of of journalists were growing. So I got that idea, and uh, she said, "Go to the business and administration school in uh, university in Gothenburg, and uh, you will get the quickest education." And Journalist, the journalist education is is shit," <laughs> she said. "So you don't need it. You can learn it on 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 the job." That fits good for us. I mean, me nor Eddie has has a background as journalist, so that helps. We're more like economists yeah, by training. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I mean, how on earth are you going to maneuver yourself to a newspaper? I mean, I, I didn't know anything about that, but. I happened to go to Japan, and I had a, one, one of my pen. I had many pen friends because that was one way of practicing English. It was very hard in those days. I couldn't afford to to go abroad because I very far abroad because I had to support myself. So I worked during the summer, but I had a bunch of of uh, pen friends. And when I came to Japan, I wrote to the pen friend that let's have a coffee on the on the airport and uh, it could be nice to see each other in reality and i looked through the glass window and there was a stunningly beautiful girl standing there i had just seen uh, you only live twice with james bond <laughs> <laughs> there she was and i i skipped the journey and went with her instead <laughs> <laughs> came home with, with a fiancé and married uh, half a year later. And that turned out to be a good move. move. It was a very drastic sort of move, but, but 
we had to go to Japan because I needed to learn more about her background and try to pick up the language and stuff like that. So I had a, I had a little bit extra time on the on my exam, so I could take two take an extra semester in. Uh, take a loan for that and, and, and so I w we went to Japan just like that and it, it turned out that her parents were very rich so they had already fixed a, an apartment and I I spent six months writing articles for a Goth the leading Gothenburg's newspaper and when I came back they hired me they said we want you as a as a as a writer in the future and, and I was the only one in that year in my peer group that got hired for anything and I got my dream job with a dream salary. <laughs> so that was more or less my background. <laughs> and which year was that when you started? 1970. I was 25. And uh, everything I had, I mean, it's ridiculous. I, anything, every, anything I worked for just fell in place. And I thought, holy silliness, I, I, <laughs> I have a lot of fun working and I get a lot of money for it. <laughs> it was there, something new. It's really interesting. I mean, there was no real grand plan. It just yeah, it was, it, was, uh, and it was entirely coincidental. Yeah. I, mean, I, 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 I didn't do anything to achieve it really uh, less than than uh, asking them to, to freelance in Japan. And of course they said yes, they, they said yes to many people and people never send anything back. But I was really serious. <laughs> so I spent half a year in Japan really, really working hard. And that's why I got that job and that was it. And since then you've written like thousands of publications and more than 30 books as we as we mentioned in the beginning. And in today's conversation, we will discuss a few highlights from, from, from your books, but focus on They Made Sweden Rich, or actually Dom Jude Sverigerik, because it's not available in, in English. Um, and it's quite interesting. We get lots of questions from, from investors and, and listener, listeners around why the Swedish market as a whole has been a great place to invest in general, and also why a few of these companies have been like, real home runs. So we hope to find some interesting answers about that today. So first of all, why did you decide to write this book about Swedish business history? I, I happened to be hired by the Swedish government, the social democratic government. And I thought I was sort of a social democrat. Still, I wasn't really because I found out when I came there and spent that year with Palme and Karl Lidbom. Uh, Karl Lidbom was, my, was one of the ministers and he was my... My, we, we were very close. We were, I was writing speeches. I can't say, I mean, you don't write the speech. You write, you, you make a background sort of collection and then you discuss for, for nights and days <laughs> how to change them uh, to fit the, the, the minister. And it was an interesting year, but I found out that the Social Democrats, they, they knew very little about companies and they and the scaring things was that they didn't want to know <laughs> they weren't interested to be enlightened by me <laughs> i was very young but i mean I, I knew a lot and i could tell them that stolberg a big project was going to lose billions of money and i said we have to we have to sort that out in the political way they say no we have to you have to, you have to sort of get rid of it as soon as possible because <laughs> you're going to have a scandal so i left after a year but i got the idea that this country has to have books about companies if we are living without knowing why we are rich why we are one of the leading companies in the world then it would be very dangerous. We are going to we are going to the third road that they talked about in the in the party was the road to East Germany or or, or Yugoslavia. So it was sort of I was uh, very very concerned, and that thought never never left me. But I went back to Afashvall because I got to, I had been there. Uh, it was a small paper that I didn't really like, but I worked with it a year or two, and they were too conservative, so I, so I took that offer to the from the government. But then, when I came back, they gave me free hands. We could 
own the paper. We could do whatever we liked with it. We should, and it was a. I mean, it was a tremendous uh, journey. We worked as a academy or six, seven guys in the same age, same kind of education. I was the only one that didn't take my exam with me. <laughs> I had left the university. I never got the time to get back again. And and and, uh, but I I was the leader of the pack, so to speak, and we spent the weeks with the excursion out in the in the reality, and spend the nights, the evenings, and telephone, coffee breaks, meetings, discussing what the hell are we going to publish this week, and what how are we going to do to to grow this. This uh, and we grow. We grow from six to one hundred ten people in in nineteen years, and we earned a lot of money. I mean, I said in the beginning we are going to get millionaires, and I said you are a stupid optimist. <laughs> but but seventeen of us sold that paper and shared the, the profit or the or the value of the company. So, and there I was in nineteen ninety four, and I was forty nine. I was not very interested any longer to sit days and nights educating 25 years old. <laughs> I thought that was terrific until then, but sooner or later you get too old. They don't, when you're 25, you don't think that a 49er is very terrific either. <laughs> so I felt it's time to do something new. What about that old idea? I, now I have uh, some financial resources so I could, I could uh, take that risk. And that's it. After that, I've been an author. I'm a, I'm a young author and an old journalist. <laughs> <laughs> and to bring us back uh, a bit in time um, to actually the 20th, I mean, to the early part of the 20th century in Sweden. Can you describe how the business environment was back then um, a bit more? In the beginning of the 19th century, we were fantastic. I mean, we had we we changed the system now. Eighteen sixty four. Next year, it's it's one hundred sixty years ago. So I'm going to write a book about that too. But we had spent thirty six years improving the economy. We suddenly had a future. We had no future before nineteen eighteen seven seven sixty four. But we suddenly got the future. We our economy grew by. 1% in the beginning and then one and a half. And by now we had 2% a year. We were the the star of that time or beginning to be a star of that time. And we had we had fantastic entrepreneurs like like, well, the Dalian at Orga, the Winkvist uh, at SKF, the, the ball bearing company. Uh, we had uh, Ed, Ed Ström at SEA, and we had uh, Kruger. We will come back to him, him I hope. <laughs> and and we had Venegren, uh, Electrolux guy. I mean, completely uh, world-class entrepreneurs, a, a whole bunch of them. And they were not cousins from the country, from a poor country in the north. They were speaking foreign languages. They have been out. They had good, a good technical education or a commercial education. And they came from a background, all of them sort of. So they, they, could, they could do almost anything. So it was more or less run by upper class People, yeah, or middle class, middle but class. but but still, I mean, they came from they came from Stockholm and they came from uh, from places like uh, Kalmar and, and uh, that was a commercial place and Uddevalla on the other side. I mean, trading posts in Sweden and the western. So so we had really started to to be something in the world. So I, I felt it was a good start for that book. I mean, it was a it was a start when the professional uh, leader took over the the companies in Sweden, started to build international companies. The Swedish market is was too small, so they had to go global at once. And to do that, those days, with with uh, where, when you have to spend two weeks to get to USA, <laughs> I mean. You really have to to have a model. You have to trust people, and you have to 
have a, a model to how to run this kind of thing and you have to have a very strong health because you had to work day and night and we will get into it a bit more but how was the relationship between business and, and politics and unions and so on at that time in the early stages very good i would say that that there were a few marxists but but uh, i mean the the old generation were shaping the society they had they they wanted to live in a better society i mean it was it was a very very uh, poor and and i mean we could read because of the lutherans we we had the catechists the uh, the hand the short the pocketbook to my like my grandmother uh, grandfather i mean if you if you needed to do to to know how to live you just read there and, and, and uh, it was faith alone but now we they had to to shape to 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 change the whole society so they built schools they they built uh, town halls and they did changed everything stockholm stockholm was a small pestilence uh, place the size of borås in, or um, a very small town and it grew like crazy for for 30 40 years and it was entirely a private project project i mean there were no worker move, work workers movement or anything they were just they were just liberal entrepreneurs from of the old school so they had provided a society by now i mean 1900 slowly it had come fallen into place and it was getting better and better the railway had taken stockholm and sundsvall out of of the from the ice from the grip of the ice and the cold and the winter and 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 gothenburg that had the lead before that was sort of equal or or or, or a little bit less than than uh, than stockholm so it was an eastern phenomena in a way before it was a western it was an interesting place and we discussed it a bit i mean it's uh, necessary to find the best entrepreneurs and managers yeah. uh, but often it's uh, even more important to avoid the really bad ones yeah which uh, leads us into ivar kruger as you mentioned before yeah. and for those not familiar with him who, who was he he was a formidable formidable person i mean he grew up with 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 a family that was reasonably successful uh, in in business they had a, they they had troubles and they had successes and they had a history and he was a very odd kind of guy but very sharp very good at school very minded and driven and maybe a bit uh, like some people are i mean overestimating his his uh, powers <laughs> and this guy he went into the world and uh, learned a lot i mean he spent time in uh, a lot of time in us after after the technical school and he spent a lot of time in south africa where his ancestors had been occasionally and he spent time in paris and he came back with some money and and a patent an american patent how to build uh, cement houses how to how to mold houses like like uh, nk the the leading department store or 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 uh, the stadium 1912 i mean the stadium of stockholm mm. He built that. He built a lot of stuff, and he was very, very good at, at pushing, making deals. And he also teamed up with Palme, Henrik Palme from the same town, who became his mentor. So he worked with his bank, the investment bank in uh, the investment bank of Stockholm. Uh, it was it's not very known, but it was uh, it it was very successful in those days. And sitting there, he in the middle of the war inflation was fantastic for him he could acquire uh, real estate stuff and a cinema chain and all kinds of production companies and he built a conglomerate of, of different things and then he by chance got into the to the structuring of the swedish match industry 
we it was a Swedish invention, the security match. And there were many small makers and the entrance barriers were rather low. So there were 30, 40 different companies. And they were there were two trusts built. And one of them, they had a problem with the younger brother of Ivar Krieger, <laughs> Torsten Krieger. He was running in that family uh, business and he knew his values. So he was a hard bargain. He, he, he drove a hard bargain. And they said, you must, you must convince him that they shouldn't, you should join here. So he went in and helped them and, 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 and without really thinking much about it, soon he was in the business himself. He took over this, uh, this match trust, the Western, the Eastern match. And, but the other one was, was bigger from Jönköping in the middle. Valken was the name of that one. And by 1918, he has, he has uh, done such a good job so he could, buy, he could merge them and take over the whole lead and the whole power and the money and everything. And the problem was that this uh, inflation balloon got, got busted the same year. It's very, it's very often very common that you merge two companies on the top of a value cycle. And that's what he did. So he went into the to the recession, owning a company that he had really uh, that was really owned by the banks. And what do you do? He just doubled down and enlarged the play. And he had contacts in the U.S. and he started to do high. I mean, he was a bit like Elon Musk. He saw opportunities everywhere and people were very impressed by him. And I think maybe 1923, he still had a chance to, to get out of a business, but slowly he got stuck. It got larger and larger and larger. And, on, and by 1928, he was incredibly big. He was he was a bit like the like well Elon Musk or or or, or the guys the high lever, leveraged guys in in the world. So he was standing there and the and the, and the stock market in U.S. collapsed. He doubled down again. <laughs> Started to 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 uh, move money from the American market to states like like Germany and, <laughs> and it worked. I mean, they, they thought everybody, they were very happy to have a guy like that, that they could open any door. Then came the worst, one of the worst climate catastrophes in history, the Dust Bowl on the American prairie. I mean, if you read the Grapes of Wrath, for example, you understand what kind of stuff it was. People were suddenly poor in the US, the economy went down the drain, the depression was everywhere. Uh, it was it was uh, spread to Germany, where six million people started to. They didn't die the first year, but they were they were still hungry every day, and they had no jobs. And there was a a young or not he was getting older a clown named Adolf Hitler. He had three percent of the votes in the in the elections. Now he had suddenly. 30% or 30 point something. And we know the, how that story continued. And in the US, it took seven years to get this economy in order again. And of course, they, they, they stopped the trade with other countries and they stopped, they took back the, the, the credits to Germany and, and France and others and, and the whole world sort of slipped into recession. And what happened with Ivar Krüger? Ivar Krüger came back to, to came back to Sweden with his, I mean, rents that had to be paid, and Sweden was far too small. And the Wallenberg youngest guy, he went to to US in another to to sort of be useful, and somebody told him that Krüger was going to crash, and he came back with that 
sort of piece of information. And uh, so they could maneuver a bit, not to be drawn together with Kruger into the, into the abyss. There could have been another ending for Kruger, but he had a very good reason to take his life, 1932, because he, he had sold Ella Eriksson to, to ITT and had robbed the company from all the cash before he sold it. So his, way, his future was an American jail. <laughs> and you know how they, how they are. So, I mean, he, he, was, he was scared and he was, he was lonely and he was like a haunted animal. But he had, had problems uh, exiting from the U.S. at that time, right? He couldn't just leave the U.S. when he, yeah. when he actually left. It took yeah, a lot of time. he had to sort of sneak out. Yeah. He couldn't go there again. And uh, how could he rescue his, his group when he couldn't? I mean, cash is everything in a situation like that. I mean, the, the people have always talked about the value of the companies, but but there is no future value if you don't if you don't have cash. And he learned that in, uh, very quickly, but, but uh, it was too late. And this is a guy who has lended money to many different countries even. It's... Yeah, I mean, it was everywhere. It was something like, uh, I mean, and they were missing money. And the, maybe the Mussolini was the guy who, who got these mon- that money that was missing in the, but of course, a guy like Mussolini, he. He said there was nothing. I mean, he, he denied that he had had any business with Kruger, but Kruger, of course, had business with, with, with Italy. And there was another sphere that was very dangerous. That was Stalin. It could have been Stalin who killed him, or Stalin's guys, because he had business with, with, with Kruger as well. And Kruger's other businesses were competing with, with the Russian. Uh, match factories. So it was a. He was in a very sort of uh, complex uh, business surrounding. And uh, one type of company common in Sweden is the is the holding company, the yeah. investment bolag, which is uh, typically majority owned by a family. Why do you think this ownership form is uh, more common on on the public market in Sweden compared to other countries? I think that's a social democratic phenomenon. They believed in market economy without owners, which is a stupid idea. And they believed in functional socialism. So they thought of companies like something the politicians can or the state can own, but it's or more or less by having very, very confiscatory uh, taxes in order to keep the owners poor and and powerless, whereas the people working in the company will work as as uh, like most other they do in in the in the in the state business. I mean, you you are hired, you're a hired guy, working with a collective, and uh, we got that kind of model after the war. The companies were sort of a company like Volvo was built on tax rebates. If you if you did what the government wanted. You could you could have your investments tax free. You could use all your profit and put it in different new projects. You could buy, acquire new businesses, or you could build factories. And if you built a factory in in northern Sweden or middle Sweden, then you can have it all, because <laughs> that's what the com- the politician wanted. And that system was working seemingly well during the fantastic after the world uh, boom. I mean, they have names for it in, in the fantastic years in every language in the US. I mean, Italy was growing about 5 to 10% every year. Uh, and, and France had the glorious uh, years and everyone except, except uh, Great Britain that had the empire to take care of and it didn't work well at all. But Sweden, was the winner because we were the demand was uh, seemed like it would never stop. They needed the capacity of the Swedish industry, and they started they built factories and they acquired new companies and they they grow during the years of of, 
of, of uh, success. But when I came into journalism, business journalism in 1970, the, the party was over. I mean, it was a brutal ending, and they, they didn't understand anything. And the interesting thing was that I worked with the Japanese companies. I mean, I, I went, uh, I mean, the, the paper wanted me to go back to Japan and make special issues, and I did that. And I, I talked to all the business people and, 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 and um, top people in the Japanese business, or many of them at least. And they understood the world much better than the Swedes. <laughs> they knew what was going to happen to Sweden. I mean, they had fr a fresh view of the world. They said, sorry, but the Swedish companies are going to, to, to fail. I mean, you don't even have color TV yet. All the, color, all, the color, all the TV and radio factories are going to close down. All the shipyards are going to close down. Maybe Kokom is an exception. They knew everything about every one of them. I mean, I was, I was so impressed. And I came back with a, with a, with a sort of roadmap. To, to Sweden and, 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 and talk to the business leaders. I mean, the, the Japanese people, they say this, oh, these transistor dealers, they, they don't understand this. I mean, they completely underestimated what was going to happen. So it's full full denial in the beginning, but then actually yeah. much of that actually <clears throat> happened in the end. Yeah. Right? No. yeah. But, and the reason for that was that everything was kept in investment companies. And if you don't empower the owners and the people running the, the, the companies, really, uh, then the, the banks are going to have the power. And the banks had the power. They, they had the money. So, so everything got very bureaucratic. So, so I mean, one, one aspect that I found quite interesting that I didn't know was that Many of the large industrial companies in Sweden were actually more or less conglomerates that they, I mean, yeah. they, yeah. they own pieces of, yeah. of many of the others. But then in terms of the holding companies, you had a few such as Investor and Industrivärden who were tightly connected to, to banks. Yeah. Uh, why was that? Why, why did banks have these companies? Uh, I mean, in the, in the Wallenberg case, it was, it was special because they... They had slush funds <laughs> stuff inside the bank, and they had such power over their companies so they ran the financial side of the companies, so they could have the money transferred to the bank and hidden, not really from the from the state, but from the relatives, because mm. they they were very scared that the all the all the different interest in the family would ask for for high dividends and and there will not going to be enough resources to to sail through the next storm so they so they were very cautious people the investment company was sort of a side show it happened when the the government asked them to divest you have to put your your owner your, your, your shares on the market mm. so they put it on the market to their own owners to keep the control or the power over, over the the power over the, the cash <laughs> but and they ran the companies uh, but it was more a power construction than than a business mm. the bank was everything it, and and the other ones they sort of copied them, because they were in the middle. I mean, Wallenberg was the leading family, and you have never seen a guy in Sweden more powerful than Marcus Wallenberg in those days. He was he was a bit like Henry Kaiser in during the war in the U.S. I mean, a guy who was dealing with the government all the time. How how should this be done? And Roosevelt said to him, "Build a bridge." build 30 uh, attack boats or whatever. And it was the same thing with Wallenberg. We want a new, we would like this and this. And he said, okay, we fix that. We have the defensive airplanes, for example, uh, yeah, whatever, atomic power, peaceful power. He was always there fixing and, and dealing like a conductor. He never asked a guy from the government to come to him. 
like he did with all everybody else. He came there, but he didn't say when he was going to appear. So sometimes he appeared, and because I was working, so I, I, I know this from inside. Oh, Wallenberg is there. Oh, please, uh, could you sit in the... <laughs> and he knocked on the door and came in, and they had a chat and talked what, what was his errand today. And he was very sort of open and nice and joking and talking about all kinds of things until he went out the door he turned around and said oh there was another thing <laughs> thank him the real, yeah. the real that was the important <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was sweden in those days yeah. we had an oligarch <laughs> <laughs> and closely related to the holding companies are, are what we call serial acquirers yeah who primarily buy private yeah. companies and they use the generated cash close to buy more companies. Uh, and this model has been perfected. We know many companies here in Sweden, in the Bergman and Beaving, with the sister companies there and in the trade, for example. And in the book here, uh, you write about a wave during the 60s, 1960s, with so-called development companies. And they seem to, pl- to closely relate to today's serial acquirers. So how did these companies come about and, and what happened to them? Yeah, it's a very interesting Swedish social democratic phenomena too. Because the all the entrepreneurs in Sweden, they, especially the ones that needed capital, cash, they, they needed to build factories and they needed money and uh, shipping a lot of inventories abroad and stuff like that. And whenever they built something, they privately had to tax more. I mean, it was a, a terrible situation to be in because if you if you if you found money and you put it in, in in different in the value of the company, then the value was going to be raised for your shares, your private. So you next year you had to you have to pay a higher tax, based on some on on some uh, idea that the tax authority had not not anything else, and. They discussed that in the government, but they said, "Oh, these these uh, people they are they are tax evaders. We have to keep them hard, and we have to be." They didn't trust them. I mean, the entrepreneur was nothing in Sweden in those days. Even some of the business guys said that an entrepreneur is just an old-fashioned businessman with no cash and no no education and, and no so. The development company was an idea of the banker Marcus Wallenberg. He he started incentive, and the idea was that he should put all the a lot of of those entrepreneurs under an umbrella and help them, and Enschilda Bank and his bank should help them with with money, and they since they were part owner and only own shares they would they would they wouldn't be considered as as uh, i mean they didn't have to 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 have tax on on more than their shares and their and their dividends they got so they were more or less equal to all other shareholders in the in the economy but the thing was that when you put all these people all these entrepreneurs under an umbrella the guy that the the banking guys that had that umbrella that supplied this umbrella. They wanted power too, and they were not entrepreneurs. So, if you have fifteen formerly very inventive companies, you end up having a bureaucracy for them. And Handelsbank followed with promotion, and I remember that people in promotion they called it slow motion. <laughs> and I think it was the same thing everywhere. They they didn't they didn't mean it, but the result was that it that it became another investment company uh, only that they have so had so many uh, different uh, ideas and and it was very hard to to control them so you could see the the uh, development companies disappearing one by one and in in the 1990s they they were sold or constant or or changed but as you say, at the same time, there were companies like Bayman and Beaving that 
pushed another model that, that proved to be successful. And speaking about that company, you have written a great book named Tisenhult, uh, where investors can learn about the history of Bergman and Beving and its very influential former CEO, Anders Börjesson. Uh, what do you think stands out with him as a leader? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, the interesting thing about him is uh, mainly, like in many other cases, that he came, he's a, he's a guy of his time. He grew up in, 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 in with, with some very uh, entrepreneurial relatives, a, guy, a normal guy, choosing the right kind of, of education and starting off as an accountant accountant learning the tricks on the trade just when the the new uh, computer systems came and all the uh, i mean the efficient uh, tools for for controlling a company were developed and he had a, a his boss was a philosopher sort of and this and he was a very tough and ambitious young guy so they sent him to to different uh, Uh, seminars and stuff talking about what was going on in the world and there happened to be the new the new idea of management that you could really see a connection between the market and the profit profitability so there was a way of of uh, you could see that some company was more valuable than than another because they have this and this Uh, way of working in the in the in their business environment, and some companies are more easy to control than others. And training companies were very interesting because they needed very little capital. And a lot of this theory came from the U.S., right? From yeah, U.S. Yeah. consulting companies, yeah. especially from General Electric. Yeah, and because uh, they had seen that a good manager couldn't save a bad company and a, 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 a bad manager could could make it with a good company sometimes so so they really wondered why was that and they sort of came with a lot of competitive competitive analysis competitive advantage all kinds of these it was a very lively period and i, I remember it well because i started the management magazine because of that so i was in the middle of that kind of of uh, theoretical Uh, and and uh, it, it changed their business forever. And I think Anders Börjesson and his mentor, they developed a, a simple model for their sales engineers. They didn't know anything about accounting, but he taught them, they taught them how to use six nuts to sort of tighten that these nuts and check them every week or every day. And they had to do with the wages of a company and the inventory level. And it also had to do with the, the way you paid, how fast you paid your, how slow you pay your, <laughs> your bills and how fast you collect <laughs> the money from your, from your dealers, uh, from your customers. Pay your 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 dealers late and get the money quick from the customers. And if you, it sounds very simple, but it has to be done all over the way, and you have to do it always, 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 always. And if you do that, you get a lot of cash flow, yeah. and you can spend that acquiring companies, this or investing in expansion. And you could probably grow without ha having too much problem with the bank. You can grow 25% a year or something mm. like that. And I did that, really. And uh, as you know, this guy who is, has never been very known in Sweden. Uh, I, I remember a, a play, uh, Sven Ivan Sundqvist, who was very uh, powerful because he mapped all the owners and in Sweden and in that owner list he was named Börje Andersson <laughs> <laughs> close enough <laughs> yeah close enough yeah but it was really the the Börjesson group all the time because he was the one who knew how to handle this and and, and Adtech and Lagerkrans they they sort of they whenever the whenever the company got too complex they 
they uh, separated yeah. the different parts and f found new companies. Yeah. So that's an uh, that's a model that quite a few players are using in Sweden nowadays. Even Wallenberg. I think we could speak about uh, the history and, and the future and uh, Swedish business and so many other topics for, for hours with you. I would love to do that. But uh, uh, now we are going into the segment of reading and writing. And as this is a book podcast, we'd like to wrap up with a few questions yeah. about that. And yeah. uh, we can't leave this conversation without talking about product productivity, as we mentioned in the beginning. You have written around one book per year on average over the last 30 years. And we are we are curious how you have made this possible. Well, in a way, I'm writing the same book, so there are many there are many uh, connections between the books, and it's uh, it's. Uh, but I also write three books at a time, so I don't get bored. I mean, there is a you get you have a kind of anxiety and procrastination and stuff like that. And whenever I start procrastinating, I turn to my hobby project, which is the in search of a true <laughs> worldview, which I really write write for fun, for the fun of it. And after and off when I get too anxious or have too much angst, as the Germans say, just writing away useless uh, projects, then I return to my uh, to my bread and butter projects. And, and since I've been editing so many and organizing so many uh, magazines in my world i'm uh, organizing a book is not that that uh, complex for me i mean i i only have myself i'm i'm very dependable <laughs> according to my own view <laughs> and i don't have to worry about anything except my own health so i have to have some physical practice and I have to sleep every day. I shouldn't work in the evenings. I have a lot of rules like that that sort of should keep me fit and not and not uh, crashing. There is no way I can I mean there is no way to escape once you once you're in the middle of writing. And you have to have you have to have a company too, but I have five children. I have a wife who works with the same thing, Toron. We have been talking every breakfast for 33 years, it is. <laughs> and we have been uh, reading with, with the same nightlife lamp on, <laughs> a few pages in Economist and, and, and uh, Life and Arts and stuff in the evening before sleeping. And we are we are traveling. We are walk. We are walking, and we are discussing business all the time. And we have our own portfolio with the shares that we discuss. And I mean, it's uh, I live in this. I breathe this all the time. It's a crazy thing to do, but it's still uh, a very interesting life. As a as a journalist, you can you can be curious. You can you can meet anybody anybody you want. You can just you can just send a letter or or or, or, or text text a message to and ask. Yeah. So I was I was going to ask. I mean, how do you cope with the loneliness of being a writer? But now it doesn't seem that you you, you aren't that lonely. No, and as I told you before, it's I grew up with a lot of people around me, and I worked with a lot of people around me all my career. I've been sitting in the middle of. A, of a, a group always and perhaps i was craving for some loneliness <laughs> after all these years i uh, i like my own company more nowadays than i than than i used to i think it's uh, it's more silent and it's more it's very hard to really think through when i take a walk which is harder when my knee is aching uh, i never listen to music or anything. I just let the brain. So probably I have a brain that is a bit uh, crazy about thinking. <laughs> but then when you sit down, you just start to write. And after yeah, the yeah, walk, yeah. because you have all these thoughts Write, in your mind. Writing time is terribly precious. Mm. So that that's a problem. I mean, you have to be, whenever you sit 
by the computer. I've done that since 1982. I, I'm some computer literate, but not that good at it. And but I, whenever I sit there, I have to be fresh. I have my brain has to be fresh. Otherwise, it's no use. I mean, if you sit and burn your night oil, it's like porridge up there. It's a nothing good comes out of it. I mean, so so it's. A, so it has, it's a very disciplined thing to do. I guess it's hard to to choose a darling among all your books. I guess it's like picking one of your five children. But if you would mention your, say, one or two or three favorites among your books, which would that be? I think Electrolux's book is not that bad. Uh, it's, a, it's a very complicated story with two different uh, entrepreneurs and, and uh, a lot of a lot of uh, problems and the company meant a lot to Sweden and it meant a lot to the to the management uh, in the world. So that book can be interesting. And of course, I, I, this uh, book we have talked about this more. I'm going to write a new version of that book, six, 160 years, and that's going to be my best book. <laughs> like it always. <laughs> I would say that the the world the book about uh, Peter Wallenberg it's a bit uh, interesting because I was I never really liked Peter that much I didn't know him either and he uh, he he asked me if I could help him to remember because he said you you always remember everything can can't you help me to write my memoirs. So we sat down in for years and discussed it every month or so. Finally he was so weak and he was go said he was that he was going to die and we I we couldn't really find a viable project and he said, Well, if you would like it, you can write that book. I'm going to check you from above. <laughs> 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 but <laughs> So I wrote it after he was gone. Mm. It's a book about about uh, life. It's a book about uh, how to f how hard it is when you have a father who doesn't like you or doesn't really. Even if you are fantastic, he he doesn't really want to admit it. So it's a there are many aspects, and it's also a book about Sweden, of course. And we will do a, a giveaway as uh, you have been generous enough to bring a few books. In English uh, yeah. here, and we will do a small giveaway on our Twitter or X channel after yeah. this episode. A question we often ask uh, authors is, uh, is there any book that you would love to read but not write yourself? Yeah, I have a super idea that I'm not going to go into myself because it will take so much risk. But I, I think there should be a book written about uh, autocrats uh, during the pandemic, how, how they changed. I saw it from from outside. I read a lot of newspapers and I followed them. I mean, guys like Moody, guys like Erdogan, Putin, Xi Jinping, they were all Trump. They were all lousy, Boris Johnson, because they, they, they didn't care much about the people. They, they, they just cared about themselves. They were, they were paranoid. They were uninterested. They just want to protect their their group of vessels and their power group and their business and their corruption. So that's why they 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 miserably failed, mm -hmm. and the result after became a lot more anxiety and war. I mean, Taiwan and, and Singapore has a lot to think about now after the when Xi Jinping got a bit more crazy. And you know what happened in, in Ukraine. It was in the cards. And it's not nice to be a, a, an Islam person in, in India. And it's not nice to be with Erdogan either. I mean, they are, they are, the world has changed because of a pandemic and because of a few people's brain or mind. And uh, what do you read when you're not writing? I have read many books so and i don't i'm not the name droppers because <laughs> I, one book that really made an impression on me was machiavelli and it's very misunderstood he was the first one to tell the audience what kind of person an autocratic leader is the prince you mean the or... prince yeah 
and he didn't dare to publish it. He, it wasn't published until he he was dead. So Machiavelli was not that kind of person. He was just a guy who dared to to tell what kind of shit this system was. <laughs> I mean, so so he he changed the world. How do we see the top people when we take away the propaganda and uh, and uh, how do they work? What kind of system is it? Pelagicvist has written a book, Dvergen. It's probably translated to English. It's a very good book too about the same problem, but it's a bit the copy of, uh, of uh, The Prince. Ronald Fagefjell, thank you so much for coming on Investing by the Books podcast. Uh, this has been an honor and a great pleasure for us. And I'm sure our audience have learned a lot about Sweden and, and international businesses as well. Where can our uh, listeners follow you and, and your work? I'm going to do something about that. I haven't had time to do much about it because I've been, I've been trying to survive with it on the Swedish South Sweden. I mean, the Swedish language is, is read by one in 800 compared with English. I'm going to be more active in, in writing in English and blogs and stuff like that. But there, but there are many books that you have in, in English and they are available on uh, different bookstores internationally five, as well. Five, six probably, but, but not more than that out of 32. Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Ronald, and uh, I hope to see you again soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.